Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. The 13 may sound familiar, but it's a different uh, book than we've been looking at. We have completed our study uh, of the kingdom parables uh, uh, that Jesus offered in his discourse contained in Matthew 13, looking at the different aspects. And we have not yet begun a, a new series. We'll begin next week that I am calling Gospel BC. We will be doing a survey of the Old Testament and showing that the gospel was not a late idea and God saying, oh, man has got himself in such a mess. What am I going to do now? I'll send my son and uh, maybe we'll take care of that. From ever before the foundations of the earth, God's plan was to display his glory through his love and grace in the person of Christ. And the reality of that is contained in all of the Old Testament as well. And so we'll do a, a survey uh, through the better part of the, the rest of the winter and into the spring of the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament narratives. But this morning we have a, a wonderful thing taking place in our church. We have the, the opportunity to ordain and install our, our new officers. And for that reason, the elders had asked that I would give an explanation of, of why we do what we do and what it is that you are to do. And so I ask for your prayers because my aim this morning is to talk about church government and not bore you to tears. Now, part of the problem is I actually like this kind of stuff, and so I can go on and on and on, as I know that's a surprise. So anyway, so pray for me as I, I pray for you uh, this morning. Father, we come now to your word, and we commit ourselves to hearing your word. We are reminded that Jesus declared to us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, your word is the food for our soul, and the soul is the heart of our lives. We pray that through this word, you would both inform and form our minds the way that we think and the way that we see things, that you would uh, conform our, our practices to what you have taught us, and that we would see the reality of your love in every command instruction that you've given. Lord, in this way that you bless us and we rejoice in you, we also more than have that, that close relationship, but we see the fulfillment of your promise. The work that you have begun, you will see through to the end, that you, those who you have called, you will sanctify, that we may become like Christ, and you will edify, that we would become one even as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Lord, use this time and be at work within us through this instruction that you've granted us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning is one verse, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hear the Word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. I imagine as children, most if not all of us played the game from time to time we call follow the leader. The object of that game was to follow a designated individual 
over and around and under and through whatever obstacles may be in your way, and then at the same time, all of the time we're doing that, to mimic the actions that the one up front was doing. That was the game of follow the leader, or you would change leaders. I also imagine that for most of us, if not all of us, at some point along the way, we stopped playing that game. One reason may be as we matured, we learned more about ourselves and wanted to express our individualism. And so the idea of just following somebody and mimicking them just really made no sense. It was not a helpful way for us to express our own identity. Perhaps it was simply because we recognized that to follow somebody blindly can be relatively, well, can be perilous. We should find that out when you're following a nine-year-old who has no fear. And if we didn't learn it then, we may not have learned it. We may have learned it because even in the any institution, any organization we've been part of, we have heard of, if not seen and experienced, tremendous abuses from those who are in positions of leadership. And it's eroded our trust. And the idea that we would just simply follow the leader seems to be unwise and in some cases may even seem to be ungodly. And so we have become a people who express our individualism as we mature and we coexist within whatever organizations we are part of, in, including the church, the body of Christ. Now, this text is interesting because in a very real sense, the writer of the book of Hebrews is not only encouraging, but he's instructing us to play an adult version of follow the leader. That's what he says. Obey your leaders and submit to them. He's, he's calling us to follow the leader. Now, this text comes in at the end of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews has spent 12 chapters talking about the supremacy of Christ, that he is preeminent. He is greater than everything else in all of creation and that he is worthy of all honor and worship. And as great as he is, he's also come to us that we might be in him and relate in him and relate to him. And so having written so magnificently about the person of Christ, this last chapter he writes some practical instructions and ways that we can live to please God. And in that list of things in ways that we can live to please God is following the leader, obedience to the leader. Now, I, I'm sure that that instruction, that simple instruction, would cause some to be uncomfortable. And it's understandable for reasons that we I just mentioned a moment ago and for any number of reasons, if not the least of which is it seems rather self-serving for me as the pastor to be standing up here and say, obey your leaders and submit. I have a car that needs to be washed. No, that's... Um, but my hope is that as we we look at this subject and what's implied and directly stated by this verse, what the writer has in mind is that your concerns would be alleviated. Because in addition to the specific instruction of obey the leaders, there's also the reason behind it in this verse, which is, is really what I believe that the writer of Hebrews has in mind, at least equally, if not even more so than the instruction. The last part of that that we'll look at is it's so that it goes well for you. In other words, 
the instruction here is not just to do something, but it's to do two things. One, there is a relationship to the leaders that God has raised up. And then second is to seek the maximum benefit for your own souls that you possibly can. That's what this verse implies, and that's what is included in this verse. And so for us to understand what God has given to us and then how that relates to what we will have the opportunity to do here today, we need to extract from this passage and the context the principles that will help us to understand that will shape our understanding and then hopefully our lives. The first principle that we need to understand and we, that needs to be stated is, is this, is that Christ alone is the head of the church. And for many people you might say, well, of course, it's easy to look at that and to either overlook it or, or simply to assume that. And then for those of you who are diligent students, you'll look at the passage and say, there's not even anything in there in that verse that says anything, this says anything about Jesus. So making Jesus the head of the church and, and to state that as our foundational principle, while you may not have disagreement of it, you may wonder, how is, how is that rel- relative to this verse? And I would suggest to you that the idea of overlooking or just simply assuming Christ is the head of the church, I think occurred to the writer of the Hebrews. If you back up a few verses to verse 7, we see that the writer, as he's giving this list of things, he starts on this idea of the relationship of the body of Christ to the the leaders that are raised up, and then he moves off in another direction before he comes back to this very same theme. In verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith and so he's giving an instruction of what the body of Christ is supposed to do in relationship to their leaders consider the leaders look at their life and 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 follow the leader as as uh, he's speaking that in that verse and then he moves on into what may seem to be an an odd direction because he's giving you an instruction about the leaders and then he says this Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we are familiar with that verse. If you're a Bible student, you've been in church. But if you think about the two statements, he's talking about what you're supposed to do with leaders. Now he goes over here and he's talking about Jesus. And I think that what he is telling us or what is going through his mind as he begins this thought of the relationship to the leaders that God has raised up, he does not want to leave it to be assumed that Christ is the head of the church. He spent 12 chapters writing about the glory of Christ, but even that, he says, that's not sufficient that people will figure out the context. Let's make sure that we don't lose it. And so he's talking about the leaders. He then moves in and he talks about Jesus. And Jesus is the, the same yesterday, today, forever. And then he moves on and he, he gives some explanation of, the, uh, uh, of what, what he means. And I think this connects it to what he is to say uh, later. He says in verse 9, Do not be led away by diverse or strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And so he's saying don't don't get off on rabbit trails. He's talking about leaders, and he's saying it's just easy to get caught up in all sorts of things. But before that, he says Jesus is the same yesterday. He points our attention to Jesus, and he says, don't turn your attention from that. I think he means even when you're talking about how the church is supposed to function, he's saying don't get caught off in different details of anything. It always has to be rooted in the pers- person of Christ. He wasn't the foundation, and then he's not now. He was, he is, and he always will be the only head of the church. 
And so when we're talking about this subject, the author of Hebrews is telling us, don't go off into details without remembering the person of Jesus. And he explains why in the subsequent verses. He's already said, you know, don't get caught up, and he's using the foods because that was one of the big issues is what should you eat and what should you drink and what should you not eat and what should you not drink. That was not issue only here. We see it in several of the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians. He writes to the Galatians. People get caught up on all sorts of mundane things, but we shouldn't assume that the only thing that we should talk about is our diet. We can get caught up on anything. Anything can distract us from the reality of Christ. And if we are not consciously reminding ourselves of who he is and what he has done and what he is doing, we may go through the motions the right way, but we will still be in error. And he's reminding us we don't get caught up in false teaching and and other things. And then he says some things that in some ways may seem, again, peculiar as we look at them until we see them in context. Verse 10, he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, they're not holy enough. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is, is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And there's the key because really this is a presentation of the gospel. He's bringing us back to the gospel. He's saying, first of all, we need to remember Christ. If we're going to talk about leadership in the, in the body of Christ, we must remember Christ himself. Don't get caught up in other details. And then he moves into the gospel because he's talking about the sacrifices that were offered and saying that the people who were offering those sacrifices, they weren't worthy themselves to even participate, to partake of, of those things. But they offered them nevertheless. They would take them outside of the camp and they would offer those sacrifices. And then he's showing that Christ, who is our sacrifice, so Jesus went outside the camp and to order to offer himself as our sacrifice. We must remember that Christ is the head of the church and by that blood that he shed on his own, he purchased the people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and he calls them his church, his assembly, his people. We are founded on the gospel and we can't just assume the gospel. And Christ is the head of the church and as the head of the church, he gives instructions on how the church is to function. And number one, we see here is do not forget that Jesus is the head of the church. Paul was very clear when he says this to the Colossians that Jesus is, he is the head of the body of the church. Very simple understanding. And therefore, we must always recognize that every expression of leadership is not a substitute for him. Not even to exercise for him, but it is under him. No church authority, no spiritual leadership is in the place of Christ. It is always subordinate to Christ. He alone is the head. But with that understanding, we also need to see this, as the instruction here suggests to us, as all of Scripture um, and all of the New Testament teaches us, is that for the functioning of the body of Christ and for the health of the body of Christ and for the benefit of those who are part of the body of Christ, The Lord has raised up a biblical team leadership. Biblical in the sense that it submits, the leaders submit themselves to the instructions of Christ, are aware of their need to be conformed to the person of Christ, and realizing that Christ is the head. Really, in verse 7, that seems to be what the implication is. Remember your leaders, those who speak the word of God, in other words, those who are teaching, those who are preaching, those who are counseling you in the word of God. 
consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So that was the first part of this instruction. He's talking about those who are leaders. But then as we come here, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And what I want you to note here is something that is easy to overlook, and because it's our practice, again, to just assume, but there's a very important S there. Obey your leaders. It's plural. It is always plural. And since Christ alone is the head of the church, there should not be an expression of the church on earth where there is any person, any man, who is putting himself in a position as if he is the head of that church. In fact, by this instruction and by the model that we see, whether in Acts or Paul's specific instructions to Timothy, to Titus, Peter's instructions, John's writing to uh, the churches uh, in his epistles, we never see that there should be any person, anyone who is the head of the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. The apostles themselves didn't even declare themselves to be singularly a head of the church. They were leaders of Christ's church. And so the Lord raises up a biblical team leadership. There should always be plurality of leaders at one time. And it's in the multiple counselors that there is great wisdom and accountability and encouragement. The image of these leaders that the Lord raises up, plural leaders that come together, he says, they are the shepherds of your souls. That's uh, what the verse says, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So the imagery there is that of shepherds. And as those who will give an account. The idea of the shepherd is one who feeds, who tends, who cares for, who keeps an eye out, is involved in every aspect of your life. They are not sitting someplace where you would come and just simply hear words or instructions or rules, dictates. The shepherd is among the sheep. And so the shepherds here are to be a people who are involved in your lives and to know what's going on in your lives and to care for every aspect of your lives. They're watching over your souls. They're not only concerned for uh, your presence, but they're concerned for your spiritual well-being, for how your soul is forming. Everything else flows from there. In fact, since that's the responsibility, we might even say that that takes a priority over the externals because we're all going to experience difficulties in this life, whether it's hardships in, in financially or in jobs or illness. We all have those. We, we bear burdens with one another. The whole body does that. But the leaders are preparing a responsibility to know what's going on see how your soul is, is doing, and reinforce that, strengthening your soul so that you can give praise to God at times where things are going well so that you can stand firm and still see God's love and grace at times when things are not going well. The shepherds of your souls are involved in your life. They understand that everything that's going on because we've already been see, seen in the, in the writer of Hebrews has said, look, our great high priest, the one who's the head of the church, he's experienced everything that we've experienced. We can relate. We can identify. And so the under-shepherds, those who are leading his body, would likewise be shepherds of the soul and concerned about every aspect of your life. And so there's different responsibilities that leaders will exercise. And the Scriptures give us a case study for this as well in Acts chapter 6. We won't turn there, but if you want to make note, if you're not familiar with it, Acts chapter 6, the early church was booming. 
Scholars say that at that time there may have been as many as 40 or 50,000 people in the church. It's not what the Bible itself says, but the Bible there was just talking about when it refers to, it talks about the number of men. Well, most of those men were married. Most of those married men had kids. And so you need to multiply the number of people based on the number there, understanding the way that the literature counts. And so it was a significant number of people. And as the, any organization grows, sometimes things fall through the cracks. Certain details are not noticed. And the same was true in that church. Some of the women, some of the, uh, some of the widows who were, part of, uh, who were part of the church, but they were not part of the more influential part of the church, were being neglected. Their needs were not being met. It wasn't malice on anybody's part, but they just, people weren't aware, people weren't thinking about it, they weren't connected. And so a group of women were, were not being cared for in the way that they saw others being cared for in a way that would be consistent with the way Christ would have his people cared for. In other words, they weren't receiving and feeling the love that they were told they should be experiencing and extending when they came to Christ in the first place. And so some began to grumble. And the grumbling came to the ears of the apostles, and they said, we need to deal with this. And, and they sat down, they prayed, they, they talked, talked it over, and they came to a few conclusions which are important. First one is this, is that it's an important matter. That Jesus is not just concerned with your soul only, but how we are doing physically. Every aspect of our life, Jesus is concerned with, and therefore the apostles need to be concerned with as well. Physical needs need to be met. But they also said the priority of what we're doing is preaching of the word and praying for the people to grow in conformity with Christ. And that can't be sacrificed. That can't even be watered down. And so now we have attention. We have this important need, and we know it's important. It must be met, but we have a priority that cannot be compromised. And as important as it is, if we were to take our time and try to meet those needs, we would not be able to put the time that we need to in studying and teaching God's word. And so they came to the conclusion that they needed to establish a division of leadership. And so the first deacons were established to care for the body of Christ, their physical needs of the people in the community and people on the periphery of the community as well. And the two together would serve in leadership. Different aspects, different responsibilities, but they would serve together. And we don't see any other model for any other church as we see instructions throughout the New Testament. They would work together as both elders and deacons. The apostles often referred to themselves as elders, and they continued in their primary role of teaching the word and of praying for the people. And then elders in this day have assumed that responsibility and deacons caring for the tangible needs of the people in the body of Christ. It's not that an elder which a pastor is, is, is above and this stuff is beneath them, it's because it's an important job that needs, needs specific giftedness and attention that the elders, if they're to do what they're supposed to do, cannot do and do anything well. It's so important that it needs people to be specialized for, and so the deacons were established. And here in Hebrews 13, the writer of, of Hebrews is, is addressing the issue between the leaders, probably especially the elders at this point, but nevertheless, the leaders is what it says, and the relationship that they have with the church for the good of the church. Another thing that's also important to note 
is that there is an accountability. And it's not just from an election that they might get impeached. But the accountability that they're talking about here for those who are willing to assume this office is more awesome than being dethroned. Because what the writer is talking about is those who will have to give an account. And what Scripture teaches us is those who are in positions of leadership are going to be required to give an account. They are going to be judged. Those who are elders, those who are deacons, will be given account not only for their own lives, their own actions, but for every person who has been entrusted to their care. Everyone who is a member of this church, those who are elders, will have to give answer for. And so if there's someone in our church who is blatantly in sin and is unwilling to repent and is living that out, not only individually are they going to stand in account, but I and Camper and every other elder here is going to be asked, and what about this person? And what's our answer going to be? Well, beats me. I didn't even know anything about that. Not a good answer. Most of you who work have responsibilities, things that are entrusted to you, and if your employer comes to you and said, well, what about this? And you say, oh, I don't know. I'm guessing you're not going to be on the raise list. Nor is it a legitimate answer before a holy God for those who are officers. But God says that we will be held accountable for all of your lives. It is an awesome, it is a scary responsibility to be raised up as a leader in Christ's church. It's not a status that is to be, uh, poured, uh, to be exercised over people. It is one that needs to be assumed in being very, very humble about it. And it does drive those who are in leadership, if we take this seriously, to the only hope that we have, which is, Lord, it's not a matter of how well I do what I do, but I need desperately the grace of Jesus Christ who died because of my deficiencies, both in my own heart and the way that I carry out in obedience to what you do. I am not competent to do what I'm called to do. Even in collective group, I cannot do this. And every elder, every deacon would say the same thing. We desperately are in need of Christ, whose righteousness is counted as ours, despite our abilities and inabilities. Now, that's an understanding of what the elders and the deacons are accountable for. They exercise it by teaching, instruction, by prayer for folks, encouraging sometimes correction. But how is the congregation to respond? Well, the writer here tells us that this is you're to seek your maximum benefit. And the instruction there is this. Let them do their work with joy and not with groaning. Or as the NIV says, so, so that their work will be a joy and not be a burden. Because if the work is a burden, if they do their work begrudgingly, simply because, well, I signed up for this, but I can't wait till I rotate off and somebody else will do this for me. If that's the mindset that is cultivated because of the nature of the work, the writer of Hebrews says, that's, not, that's no benefit for you. And so the instruction is to the body of Christ to function in a particular way that is to able to maximize the joy of those who are serving so that you receive the maximum benefit you can. And to do that, what I want to touch on very quickly is what are the joy killers and what are the joy encouragers? The joy killers are pretty evident in a lot of places. Number one, uh, I would just say, are the grumblers. 
You cannot read through the Old Testament and Israel without seeing that Israel was a bunch of grumblers. Anytime they became uncomfortable, no matter what took place 20 minutes before, they just started to grumble, and grumbling would go through all, uh, would work their way through. And they were oblivious to that part of their nature. One of the things that is most in- intriguing to me, cracks me up and scares me at the same time, is Joshua's installation ordination. Because as Joshua was standing there to be now uh, be appointed as the head uh, leader of Israel, the people in the congregation were shouting out, we'll follow you as we followed Moses. And whenever I have the opportunity to share that passage to a young minister who's about to take us, I said, that's not a promise, that's a threat. <laughs> but they thought they were wonderful. And if they bring it up, you're going to do what? I mean, didn't you just try to kill the guy several times? They'll just say, yeah, well, that was a bad day. But, you know, we're good people because there can't be really anything wrong with us. And so they're just a tendency to grumble. And the reason that's important to understand and a key to understanding the Old Testament is we're Israel. Israel feels and lives out, experiences everything just like we do. And realization that we are prone to be grumblers is the only way that we will stop the grumbling amongst our midst because there's nothing that will rob joy of leading more than grumbling, unless it's apathy. There are places where I have had the opportunity to teach where people have no hunger to grow, no interest in change. They go through the religious motions. In fact, they'll probably sit in church, and it's like I feel like it's, I dare you. I dare you to tell me something that I don't know. I dare you to tell me something I'm supposed to do, and I dare you to try to make me do it. It's not fun teaching in those situations. No doubt there are people in any congregation, no doubt there are people in this congregation who have a greater understanding of God's Word than I do. No doubt there are many in this congregation who are more faithful to God's Word than I am. But we build each other up in the Word, and the only thing that makes it it beneficial or what I have to offer is your own hunger. When I am the pickiest is when I am the least hungry. When I am hungry, everything tastes good. It's true not only about our meals, but it is true about what we eat when we feed on God's Word and what's presented to us. Apathy is a joy killer. So is defiance. People who sit and think, who do you think you are? I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm better looking than you, all of which is probably true. But those who have been raised up to leadership, it's not because of their superiority, it's because of God's grace, and as we did in our camper, reminded us in the call, in our, our words of assurance, God raises up the foolish in order to humble the proud. But nevertheless, he raises up leaders. Now, I share these things, and I do have to say this. I've only been here for a short time. I have not seen any evidence of these in our body here. To say that we can't, well, that would be foolish. We certainly can. And so I say this not as a a confrontation or a correction of you, but just as a caution. These will rob your leaders of joy if these become characteristic of this congregation. But there are things that you can do. There are things that you do already that are tremendous encouragers. First thing would be simply your commitment 
to grow spiritually. You know you want to grow. You want to be faithful to what God has commanded. There is nothing that brings greater joy than to see people living out their faith. If I am able to offer a kernel that is encouraging or helpful to you, then that is tremendous joy. But even if I can't to see you flourishing, even if there's not anything that I can take any credit for or any of the other elders can specifically or individually take credit for, it is a delight and a joy to see you flourish. Second thing is to pray for your leaders. We need it. And you deserve it. What I mean by that is leaders who are prayed for are far more effective and far stronger. And you are a people who deserves to have the best leaders that you can. But for the leaders to be the best they can, they need to be prayed for. So praying for those who are raised up in leadership is vitally important in whatever they do. Third is encourage them. If something is done that you, either for you or that you've just noticed that, is, that you, you find to be worthwhile, mention it to them. Say something to them, whether it's something that they've taught, a counsel they've given. If you see one of the elders praying with somebody over in a corner someplace who's not even trying to get attention, and you just know that they're faithful, encourage them. If you see one of the deacons or you hear of one of the deacons taking care of, of somebody's needs in the congregation or out in the community, thank them for what they do. It's vitally important, and I would say that's especially true for the deacons because they're underappreciated, and they are at times, oftentimes are overworked. And from my experience and studies that I've done, while may not be authoritative, my guesstimate is that deacons are lied to about 80% of the time they're trying to help people, even when there's no reason to lie. They're saying, we're here to help you, we're ready to help you, tell us your story, and they, people lie anyway outside the church and inside the church. And think about anything that you do that you know you're just getting lied to. It just, it just, it's very easy to become hardened. So let's pray for our deacons, but thank them for what they do and encourage them in that way. Share the labor. We are all priests in the body of Christ. One of the other things I say to a congregation I'm charging when somebody is ordained for a new minister going in is this, is they don't pay him to be good so you can be good for nothing. purpose of the leaders is to equip the body, to encourage the body, perhaps to guide and whatever, but we all labor together. When the labor is shared, it does not become overwhelming. The labor has to be shared. Going back to the deacons again, in Acts chapter 6, you know, the church again had 40, 50,000 people in it. So what was their solution? We're going to hire seven guys. Do you think that they actually did all the distributions and ministries of mercy themselves? No, they were engaged in it, but they oversaw the ministry as the body ministered to one another. They made sure that the body was caring for itself, sharing the labor. And finally, tell them when you have a need. Don't assume omniscience on the part of any of your leaders. If there's something that you need, whether it is a tangible need that you talk with the deacons about or there's a spiritual need that you talk with the elders about, let them know. Don't assume that you're insulting them by telling them something you think they may already know. And don't assume that they should already know. Our church is not huge, but it is large enough. There is no way to know. Tell them. Share with them. as a way that you can share your lives so that they can share their lives with you. And by telling them and taking that upon yourself, you minimize 
the temptation for grumbling. I'm way over time. I already lied to the camper because I told him I was going to edit this and make this one shorter. So, And I did edit it. I just threw in new things that weren't in the first service. But anyway, that's... Um, but I need to end with this. I do not believe the church government is the most important topic. It is not an essential. Godly people differ exercise in different ways in different churches. Some of them are healthy, some of them are not. Those who follow biblical government can also be unhealthy. Just because something is not essential does not mean that it is unimportant. If God has taken the time to reveal it, not just in one place but elsewhere, how we are to function, how we are to relate to one another, the responsibility of the leaders, the responsibility of the congregation to the leaders, If God has chosen to reveal it, it seems to me, simple as I may be, it must be important. And so while this may not be, and I'm pretty sure this will not be the most inspirational message you will hear, I hope that it at least is informing because we desperately want to be a church that is built on biblical principles and in living out in accordance with what Christ wants us to do. In a moment, we're going to have men come up who are going to take vows in order to be leaders. You've elected them already to lead the congregation, and they are a visible representation, a reminder of all that we need to do. And they have now been charged with what they need to do. Let me give, offer a prayer, and I'll invite those up who are to be ordained. Father, as we come, give us ears to hear, minds to receive, and hearts to receive your truth that we may function as you've instructed us, not only so that we may submit, but so that it may give the greatest benefit to those you have brought into this church. We pray in the name of Christ, our Redeemer and our Head. Amen.